Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And this week we're going over UFC 256, headlined by a flyweight title fight in Davison Figueredo, defending his belt for the second time against Brandon Moreno in a very, very fun fight. I'm really looking forward to this. Both of these guys fought at UFC 255 on November 21st, and now here they are fighting just a couple weeks later two or three weeks later so they're getting a quick turnaround both of them had relatively quick fights not much damage accrued on either one of them which is why i don't really mind this fight i wish both of them got a little bit more of a training camp to really get ready for each other especially for moreno getting his first ever title shot you'd really want to make sure you're ready against a very high level champion here and davison figueredo who can make things you know a, a pretty quick night if he needs it to be so uh you know uh, very, very fun fight. Uh, the rest of the card is pretty fucking fire. Not to mention the fight that I'm easily most anticipating all year. Tony Ferguson versus Charles Oliveira. Obviously, I was very, very hyped for Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje as well. But now that we're getting these guys that are, you know, really good at grappling. The ever-improving confidence of Charles Oliveira. Uh, how, how Tony Ferguson is going to look like after that loss to Justin Gaethje. Um, not to mention fights like Rafael Fazia versus Renato Moicano, Jacare Souza versus Kevin Holland, or Kevin Holland, who, you know, this is his first legitimate test against a high-level opponent, and albeit uh, Jacare Souza will be 41 by the time they step in the cage, I still think, think uh, that this is a, a very good test for Kevin Holland to see how he really hangs with some of the guys in that division. We also got Cyril Gunn trying to, you know, get the torch pass from Junior Dos Santos. Cub Swanson, the return of him, uh, fighting Daniel Pineda, who had a big fight last time against uh, Herbert Burns, coming through as a big underdog. Mackenzie Dern against Verna Jandiroba. Very, very big, big fight for Dern there. Uh, Dwight Grant against Li Jing Liang is a great fight. I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, Jared Van Der against Sergei Spivak is all right. Carl Roberson versus Dolce Lungiambula should definitely be a good fight. Um, uh, the return of Chase Hooper. And then uh, another uh, very dark horse fight here. Gavin Tucker versus Billy Quarantillo. Very, very fun fight there. I can't wait to see how that one turns out. But this is a great card from top to bottom. Like, we lost a couple one, a couple of the fights. However, it still looks very good. It still looks very live. This and the December 19th cards are just absolute bangers. Perfect way to end off the year. Perfect way to stand us into a three-week UFC hiatus where we get to kick back. You know, don't need to watch people punch each other in the face uh every saturday night i uh, get three weeks off and that's what i'm really looking forward to so we got two events left uh and luckily for me getting into this betting recap we had a huge event yesterday which locks up two straight winning events for us all in all a plus 15 ish unit uh two event streak here uh so let's start off with yesterday uh, uh sorry uh ufc vegas 16 let's go over that betting recap real quick I'll go from top to bottom with how it's listed on BetMMA Tips, which is my first fight. We have the lock of the night play. I had Gabriel Benitez, five units at minus 188. He cashes for 2.66 units. Very, very happy about that spot. As soon as that fight was announced, I knew it. I knew, knew, knew that I was going to be all over Benitez. Thankfully, I got that minus 188 line. Uh, I think it closed around minus 220, minus 230. So shout out to everybody that's on the Patreon. That's the way you get the best lines is by hopping on the Patreon so you can bet it as soon as I bet it.
That's all I'm going to say. Uh, so that cashes. Next up, we had a dog of the night play. One unit at plus 170 on Gian Volante. Just want to quickly break this down. I had 0.5 units at plus 175. I wanted to wait and see what the weigh-ins look like and then decide whether I want to put the full unit on Jay Collier. I was a little bit impressed with what I saw in Coll- with Collier on the on the scales, so I went the other half unit at plus one sixty five. That averages out to one unit at plus one seventy, which is why I write that, and uh, that cashes for a solid amount of money. We got uh, obviously one unit to win plus uh, plus one point seven units. Big one for Collier there. Not only did I have that, but I had point two five units at plus five hundred on Jay Collier to win via decision. That hits as well, too. So all in all, plus 2.95 units on Collier alone. Shout out to everybody that was doubting me. Shout out to everybody that was calling me crazy. But that's what you got to do in this game. You got to be confident. You got to stick with your guns no matter what people say about you. Just fucking stick to your guns. If you see it on tape and you feel like you see an edge and you feel like the line is completely off, take your fucking shot. That's all I got to say. It's a big one there. Next up, I had a 1.5 unit parlay at plus 159. The first leg was the under two and a half on the Jackson Tupuria fight. That went two to you pretty much. I was hoping that Tupuria would get the sub there. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, he still goes out there and crushes Damon Jackson with a beautiful display of boxing and striking. Uh, finishes him very, very quickly. And then Jamal Hill, I had him straight up winning at minus 175. That hits. So that parlay hits for 2.38 units. Beautiful, beautiful work there. Uh, next up, we had the under two and a half, 1.5 units at plus 130 on the Luis Mocha and Jose Quinones fight. Uh, great pressure from Quinones first time, uh, you know, in that first round. As soon as that first round ended up, I actually tweeted out, I'm like, great first round from Jose, but how is he going to continuously put up with the pressure of Luis Mocha, who just continuously walks forward, continuously goes forward, and I think would eventually break Quinones and the style of fighting that he was, uh, he was implementing in that first round that's exactly what happened smoker gets the back and just ground and pounds him gets the victory that way shout out to anybody they got louis smoker via uh, i believe it was plus 600 uh for him to win by ko so good shot there uh next up i had a or sorry this is the last one i did have a parlay of movzar evluev and roman delize um unfortunately um evluev test positive for covid he gets out of the fight, so it turns into a two-unit play straight on Delize at minus 171. That hits. I was hoping that he was going to get the finish. Unfortunately, he did not, uh, but that still cashes for plus 1.17 units. And all in all, we end the night plus 11.11 units, 99% ROI. We sweep the board. Absolutely sweep it here. Kill the night. Absolutely amazing event for me. Uh, the biggest night I've ever had at my track record. So uh, shout out to everybody that's hopped on the train since that night. I've gotten a huge boost. Absolutely huge boost in my Patreon members as well as my followers on Twitter as well as, you know, a, a little surge in my uh, YouTube subscribers as well too. So shout out to everybody. Shout out to the day ones that, you know, believed in your boy and, and knew that I was capable of having nights like this. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been great. It's been absolutely great. The rece- reception that I've been getting uh, and uh, all the love that I've been getting, it's been absolutely an- amazing. But my goal is to continue and kill these last two events so that I can go into this Christmas break with a smile on my face, a little extra money in my pocket, and a little, you know, a lot of happy customers as well, uh, to especially the people that are on the Patreon. So that's kind of what my goal is. Speaking of the Patreon, I'm going to plug it. 
I'm at a hundred as of this morning. I'm at 189 subscribers on uh, on Patreon. I'm hoping to hit that 200 mark by the time uh, the the fights UFC 256 rolls around. I truly think that's something that I'm capable of achieving. I've already dropped two plays. I've dropped my lock of the night play and my dog of the night play for this card. It, even though this event is free, it is you know. Um, just a quick reminder, my, my paid picks and my free picks policy is I need to go on three a three-streak winning event uh, streak, and then I go back to paid picks. So this is this will be the third of my three-event winning streak if I do profit this weekend, which means that next weekend I'll, I'll be strictly on paid picks. But with that said, with me on free picks this week, I release it immediately to my Patreon members so they already know what my lock of the night play is. They already know what one of my dog of the night plays are. But the public won't know until Friday. And there's always going to be that chance that the line gets steamed on either one of my plays or any one of my plays. Uh, just example, Gabriel Benitez, I'd locked him up early last week at minus 188. He closed at minus 220, minus 230. So some, uh, some of my Patreon members got some solid value there in terms of betting Gabriel Benitez a lot earlier than the public. I believe the same thing's going to happen here with my lock when I play for uh, this event. So if you want to know with what that play is already, it's on the Patreon. And again, it's only 5 bucks a month. Super cheap. You guys are helping me make this dream become a reality. I am pretty much halfway there in terms of making this a full-time thing. Uh, and it's all thanks to the support of everybody on the Patreon. You know what I mean? I can guarantee that income on a monthly basis. I can get rid of my job and do this thing full-time and give you guys even more content, quality content, and help you guys win, you know, more money uh, every UFC event. So, uh, uh, you know, once time does free up, I'm hoping to expand my my DraftKings knowledge as a, that's, that's more content that I want to give you guys, as well as... Um, you know, doing other promotions, Cage Warriors, LFA, Bellator. I do Bellator every now and then, but I still want to go out there and give you guys consistent bets every time there's a Bellator event. But right now, with the 9 to 5, with the family, with everything, and the amount of time that I put into, you know, the UFC alone every week, it's just a lot. You know I mean? I'm running on three hours of sleep right now just because I was wrapping this podcast up for you guys. But it, it is what it is, you know. Uh, shout out to everybody on the Patreon again. We're at 189. Uh, the link is in the description below if you guys are interested in uh, supporting your boy. It's five bucks a month, ten bucks a month if you want to be even more generous. Uh, and then lastly, I think the biggest selling point is the fact that there's no long term commitment. You are more than welcome to hop off the Patreon whenever you know. If I hit a dry spell or something like that, or if you're just not interested in it anymore, there is no long term commitment. You don't have to commit for three, six nine 12 months it's literally i sign up i sign up and i pay the day that i sign up and then you can cancel anytime after that simple as that all right i think that's a solid enough plug now uh, i appreciate you guys uh, being around for the the show just a reminder thursday uh, 8 p.m eastern me and cody are going to be doing our third episode of propping you up we did a great job last time around Hope to unveil some more props for you guys this Thursday. And then after that, obviously, Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, we do the final weigh-in stream on the odds. <clears throat> 
Sorry about that. We do the final weigh-in stream on odds, 9 p.m. Eastern. Make sure you guys hop on for that. And then lastly, the MMA Lawcast Live, which is my last-ditch effort to help you guys as much as possible. I do a live stream on Fight Day, 1 p.m. Eastern, where I give you uh, pretty much the show is based around the viewers and everybody in the chat. You guys drop comments. You guys drop questions. And I'm more than happy to go over them for you guys and uh, give you guys your last bit of information you need before going into the card. All right? Your boy's busy. I got a lot going on. I'm doing my best to make this a full-time thing. And the best way to do that is to stay active, keep giving you guys content. And that's exactly what I'm doing. All right. Let me wrap this thing up so you guys can get into the breakdowns. Uh, and lastly, make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. And make sure you hit the like as well already too. I got 160 likes on the last video. Hoping to top that this time around. Especially with this being a pay-per-view. As well as this coming off a huge, huge victory in the last event. I'm expecting a ton of views on this video. So if you're watching this video, make sure you hit the like. It helps me out a lot. It gets me in the algorithm and allows your boy to grow exponentially. It's been fucking awesome. All right, let's get into the breakdowns. I appreciate you guys checking out the episode. Chase Hooper versus Peter Barrett. We got minus 400 on Chase Hooper and my, uh, plus 325 on Slippery Pete Barrett. So let's start off with Chase Hooper who's coming off a loss, his first career loss, to Alex Bruce Leroy Caceres. That's a spot where I'm proud to have hit that plus 169 on Alex Caceres, as I believe that was a very, very good spot. Now, a lot of people were just writing off Caceres due to him, you know, having a couple of submission losses on his record. But uh, once you really run the tape, you really see that, uh, you know, Caceres kind of matched up pretty poorly against uh, uh, Chase Super, at least from the Hooper's perspective. Um, and it showed there, you know what I mean? Uh, Hooper wasn't able to successfully get the fight to the ground. And even when he did, there was very limited time where Alex Caceres did a very good job of getting back to his feet. You know, I like the, the movement and, and the striking style of Caceres in that fight, which is why I thought he would be successful in terms of sticking and moving as well as he did using his kicks at times uh, and just being faster to the punch. You know, even within the first couple of exchanges, he managed to drop Chase Hooper. Now, I know a lot of people were upset that he wasn't able to get the finish, myself included, though I didn't end up betting on that uh, or at least uh, the, the inside the distance there. Uh, but we we saw where Hooper is definitely uh, needing work still. And you can't really blame the kid. The kid's 21 years old. Uh, he's born in 1999, which is absolutely ridiculous to me. But he had his uh, Dana White Contender Series gig uh, July of 2018. Uh, and then he got a developmental deal where he went 2-1-1 one, one before making his debut against Daniel Tamar, who, you know, decent striker, but just not a good overall fighter all in all. I actually want to see what the hell is going on with David Tamer. He's seven and four, so he hasn't fought since that Chase Hooper fight, which was back in December of 2019. But uh, yeah, he looked good after that fight. You know, a lot of people had some high hopes for him, but I just felt like that Caceres matchup was just a very bad matchup. So this Peter Barrett one, though, this one is a little bit more interesting. Um, I feel like Peter Barrett can get dragged to the ground. There's nothing that really shows me from Peter Barrett that he has the type of movement and striking of an Alex Caceres or even the movement and striking of a guy that could, you know, keep fights off the ground. Um, now, Chase Super ever developing, uh, developing. we've seen him, uh, you know, go over there with Ben Askren, try to learn a bit, little bit of wrestling in terms of being able to get fight or the fight down a lot quicker and a lot easier uh, rather than just hoping to have to go out there, clinch the guy, pull guard or, you know, go for a trip or something like that. He needs to diverse his, diversify his ability to get fights to the ground. 
Um, and I think the next thing on his checklist would be able to, you know, start working on those hands, start working on that striking so that he doesn't have to worry about, you know, kind of diving for takedowns or hail marrying takedowns. Uh, otherwise, he'd just get completely lit up on the feet. Now, I'd hope for him to go out there and find a strong, solid striking coach. Uh, you know, a solid striking coach is even in Peter Barrett's corner, like uh, Mark Delagrati. Other striking coaches that come to mind, you know, uh, was Lance Gibson? No. Chase Gibson? Six-Gun Gibson, whatever his name is down in uh, Albuquerque. I think he's a good guy that he could, uh, you know, match up with. Even a Mark Henry. I wouldn't mind seeing what Chase Rupert could do with a guy like Mark Henry in his corner to to kind of uh, exploit uh, you know the the riches of Chase Hooper's ground game to a, to the best of its ability. He makes no bones about it. He wants to get the fight to the ground. The guy's been doing jujitsu since he was like two years old or some shit. You know he's doing it for a lifelong amount of time, which is why he has so many rear naked chokes and even just uh, finishes via uh, grappling on his record. Um, his win over Luis Gomez in Titan FC right before the UFC was very, very awesome. Like, able to get the fight to the ground and just have these all, all these weird, awkward and unorthodox positions that he was able to take advantage of. And then eventually, again, that rear naked choke looks absolutely beautiful when he's really in his in his groove. Now, I feel like, like I said, I feel like this is a guy in Peter Barrett that he should be able to do that. I'm not entirely even sure why Peter Barrett was signed to the UFC to begin with. Like, yeah, he won that contender series fight. But let's be honest, like, it, good that he got a win, and it was a bit of a war, too. Uh, you know, it was a war of attrition, who really wanted it the most, and it seemed like it was Peter Barrett. But we've definitely seen much better performances in the cage, and we've seen guys, you know, go for takedowns late, just like Peter Barrett did, yet they get they don't get signed because they don't have the killer instinct to, to, you know, keep the fight standing rather than taking the fight to the ground, which is what Peter Barrett did later in the fight, too, right? So I don't really understand the, the reasoning behind uh, bringing Barrett into the UFC. I'm not trying to shit on the guy either. It's just uh, kind of laughable, the hypocrisy when it comes to choosing who gets a contract and who doesn't on the contender series. Uh, you know, there's a reason he was a, or a plus... 375 dog to Yusuf Zalal and uh, people are still believing that he's going to carry that same type of underdog mentality here against uh, Chase Super once again plus 325 which is an absolutely crazy number now I'm not going to say I'm going out there to bet Chase Super I wouldn't play him at minus 400 nor would I even look to, to, to parlay him here the only thing that I'd be looking at to possibly get some value is to bet him inside the distance or even to bet him via submission those lines obviously aren't out yet I'm recording this on the Tuesday before a fight week so uh still a bit of time before we get the props for this pay-per-view but I, I like hooper here i think he's going to be able to get this fight to the ground whether it's hopping on the back of barrett or even showing off some of his takedowns that he's learned from possibly uh spending time with bob a or bob askren <laughs> ben askren um but uh yeah peter barrett's takedown defense just does not look the greatest and that's very very concerning especially when he's going up a kid against a kid like uh chase super here Another thing that I want to bring to attention, 6'1", 75.5 inch reach for Chase Hooper, 5'10", 73 inch reach for Peter Barrett. So Chase Hooper, Chase Hooper is always going to have the uh, the advantage here when it comes to the to the size and range, being a 145er, being as tall as he is, and obviously being as lanky as he is. I'm expecting the kid to eventually go up to lightweight once he starts to put on a little bit more muscle and really starts to kind of you know fill out as a as a kid like he's still 21 the kid's still growing he has a lot of growing and maturing still to do and his muscles and and you know all those 
all those physical aspects of it are slowly uh, panning themselves out in his body. So maybe when he hits 23, 24 years old, we see him go up in weight. Kind of how we saw, I believe, Jake Matthews used to fight at lightweight. Now we find him at welterweight as he's starting to like really get bigger and bigger in his uh, fighting career. So uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with Hoopy here. I'm not the biggest believer in Peter Barrett striking. We've seen him submitted in a couple times in his uh, in his career already. I feel like Hooper is probably the best jiu-jitsu guy that he's faced up to date. Uh, you know, Yusuf's law had him in some sticky situations, uh, but I feel like Chase Hooper probably would have been able to finish Peter Barrett in those situations. So uh, I like Hooper. Oh, and one last thing I will say, another reason as to why I wasn't as high on Hooper as most people were, especially going into that Caceres fight, is that you really notice his, uh, like, sometimes his lack of strength to, like, finishing chokes. There's a lot of times he has chokes in, but he's never really able to get it because he can't get the best squeeze. The kid's still young, like I said. He's still working on his strength. Uh, sometimes uh, fighters are able to get out of his submissions, uh, but I'm hoping, you know, with him growing and, and getting older and, and, you know, putting in more work, uh, you got to think that his squeeze is only going to get tighter and tighter and stronger and stronger. So I'm expecting him to do the same thing here against Peter Barrett. So I'm expecting him to get him down, whether it's him jumping guard or, or getting a single leg or, you know, taking Peter Barrett down any way that he can, uh, which we've seen in the past, uh, you know, opponents have been successful in doing that with Peter Barrett. I'm expecting Chase Hooper to do the same thing here. So, uh, yeah, my, my prediction will be Chase Hooper either first or second round sub, uh, but that minus 400 line is still absolutely bananas. He should go in there and cruise, don't get me wrong, but minus 400. A little bit too wide for a kid that's still growing and developing and still isn't a complete fighter. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing his striking come together because I feel like once he does that, he could truly be a problem. Like, imagine him going out there and strike out striking guys and guys just throw a lazy, lazy takedown right into a dark choke or something like that, right? That's kind of what Tony Ferguson's been doing too, right? Kind of just piecing dudes up, waiting for them to shoot a lazy shot and then just, you know, snap down City or even run a darts on them, whatever it is. That's where I think that Chase Hooper could eventually be. He still has a lot of work to do, uh, but I feel like this should be a win for him, sure, for sure. So once again, I'll go with Chase Hooper to win this fight via submission in either round one or round two. Li Jing Liang versus Dwight Grant. We got minus 210 on the leech and plus 175 on the body snatcher Dwight Grant. Uh, the over-under is actually at one and a half, which I find a little bit interesting here with the over one and a half being minus 140. Uh, definitely a spot that I like. So let's start off with Dwight Grant. Dwight Grant, I should say, uh, who is coming off uh, deservedly a fight of the night performance against, uh, yeah, obviously they didn't get it because it only lasted two and a half minutes, but uh, him and Daniel Rodriguez went to absolute war that night. Uh, crazy, crazy fight um, where we saw Dwight Grant hurt him early. Um, yeah, Dwight Grant hurt uh, Daniel Rodriguez early, and then we see Daniel Rodriguez kind of survive. Also, thanks to uh, referee Chris Tyone, who wants to see a dead body in there. That is absolutely sure. But uh, he allows Daniel Rodriguez to survive, uh, come back, and then clip and drop Dwight Grant and doesn't land nearly as much ground and pound as we saw Dwight Grant land. And uh, Daniel Rodriguez ends up getting the TKO finish there. So good win for him. Um, but the one thing that you'll find in in Dwight's, Dwight Grant's fights... <clears throat> 
Sorry about that. Uh, especially his fights that go to a decision. Both of his fights that went to a decision in the UFC were splits. He's one and one in those split decisions. But uh, one thing that you'll find is that that crowd is is booing. And more often than not, they're booing because of his low output. And uh, if he's throwing low output, more often than not, his opponent, or at least Zach Otto and Alan Joban, those guys were throwing low output as well, which really didn't give like the best uh, fight. Uh yeah, like I think with him being so low output, he's really looking for like that kill shot, which he's able to get against like Carlo Pellersoli and even Tyler Hill on the contender series. But uh, when he's not able to, it's just really tough for him to to win a decision. Even the Alan Joban fight, that was a interesting decision. Very very close fight. You know, Joban didn't do too much either. He was the one kind of pressing. Dwight Grant kind of just likes to stay on his on his heels, which is not very good. Um, especially now that he's going up against a guy like Li Jing Liang, who does put up numbers when fights do go the fifth full fifteen minutes. Um, yeah, I was trying to figure out why the line was as wide as it is. Uh, we are seeing some action come back on Dwight Grant now, which uh, makes a little bit of sense. But Li Jing Liang did open at minus two twenty five. Now he's down to minus two ten. Um, I see him as a solid parlay piece. Um, now it truly comes down to. Uh, his durability. Uh, I think if he's able to take a couple punches, uh, he should be fine. Uh, the only time he's been finished in the UFC was via choke to Keita Nakamura. But outside of that, uh, he he has gotten dropped a couple times. David Zawada, I think, was the last one to drop him. Obviously, the Neil Magny fight was really tough, but you're not going to get a Neil Magny type style here from Dwight Grant. Um, you know, Neil Magny really. Uh, Proved a lot of people wrong that night. I did have a small bet on Magni there. I thought the line was a little bit wide. I thought it was a little bit crazy. And the Magni that I expected to show up did show up. And thankfully, cash that ticket from me. But that was a bad matchup for Lee. You know, I mean, Neil Magni is all action, always moving forward, always pressuring. Um, when he's not getting his leg chewed up by Santiago Ponzanibio, he's in your face, you know, uh, clinching you, taking you down. Uh, doing some solid work from on top and really just making you suck wind and it was it was a very very tough fight for Li Jing Leon thankfully he's pretty much getting the absolute opposite here with Dwight Grant and a guy that doesn't really take a grappling approach too much really likes to continuously back up back up wait for his spot to spring and uh, once he springs uh if he lands the knockout blow, good for him. If not, it gets a little bit a little bit sketchy for him. Now I think that Lee does have a good durability. I think he has decent movement. I have seen him hit a couple times, so I'm, you know a little bit more than I'd like to. So that makes me a little bit sketched out here. But the thing that I do like, like I said at the top of the breakdown, <clears throat> is the uh, the over one and a half minus one forty. I don't think that's a bad spot. I think that we're going to see low action from Dwight. We're not going to see much of a knockout power or anything from Lee, in my opinion. I think we'll see him kind of take a, a gradual approach here to slowly pick away at Dwight Grant. Um, you know, Grant did get knocked out recently, so that is a bit of a concern. That was about four months ago, so I think that's enough time for uh, Grant to have recovered, I hope. But if his chin can hold up, and if, if Lee's chin can hold up, uh, I think that they could definitely get past that seven and a half minute mark. Now, obviously, there's limits on these uh, minus 140 lines. So we'll see which way they go as the lines start to open up and the limits start to open up. But if it stays around that minus 140, it gets a little bit better. I might 
I might make a play on it. I think it's a solid spot. There are a couple overs on this card that I'm really much looking forward to, and I think have a solid solid chance of hitting. So I'll definitely keep my eye on that. Uh, but I do think that uh, Lee is going to be the one that that's throwing more volume, that's landing more, has more has a more diverse skill set as well too. Um, I don't mind Dwight Grant's takedown defense. It's not horrible, but it's not the greatest either. Um, I'm not sure if the Lee is going to look to go that way. Um, it seems more often than not that we see Lee just tr- kind of slowly go out there, outstrike his opponents, um, land a couple takedowns if required here and there. Like the Zaleski fight, he landed two. The Zavada fight, he landed one. Um the Frank Camacho fight, he landed two. So more often than not, though, he does look to go out there and, and kind of outstrike you. And we do see high striking numbers for him when he goes to a decision or when he goes three rounds outside of that Neil Magny fight. Um, the 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 Zaleski fight, 59 significant significant strikes, I believe it is. Uh, the Zavada fight, 89. The Daiichi Abe fight, 96. Um, the Jake Matthews fight it was a bit of a tough one for him, but he still managed to get off 49 strikes there. The most that we've seen from uh, Dwight Grant, I believe, is only in like the 30s. Like he does not throw that much volume, so that's very, very concerning here. Yeah, the most he's ever thrown is 38, uh, obviously in the contender series and then in the Alan Joban fight. <clears throat> I, I'm trying to not yawn right now, and it's really fucking me up, so I'm doing my best to get through this uh, breakdown. Uh, definitely going to have to re-up on that coffee before I continue doing these breakdowns. But yeah, uh, getting back to the fight, I do think Lee just outpoints uh, Grant here. Uh, the over one and a half is probably my safest spot, though. I think that's uh, that's where we'll see these guys kind of just feel each other out. And before you know it, seven and a half minutes is going to take off the clock. So I do like Lee to outpoint Grant here. Uh, so I'm going to take Lee to win this fight via decision. And that prop is currently out, too. Lee to win by decision is plus 340. I think that's a solid spot. So once again, I'll go with Lee Jingliang to win this fight via decision. Sergey Spivak versus Jared Vandera. We got minus 230 on Spivak and plus 190 on the UFC newcomer Jared Vandera. And uh, let's start off with Vandera, who's a tough alum, not tough, sorry, I keep getting them mixed up, but the uh, Contender Series uh, alum, he fought on uh, pretty much, I believe it was the first week in November when they came back from their little bit of a hiatus, and um, he finished Harry Hunsucker within three and a half minutes of the first round. Uh, I believe Hunsucker was a very short notice. Oscar Coda was the one that was supposed to fight Jared Vandera. Uh, If you guys remember, Oscar Oscar actually ended up fighting uh, the Nick Diaz's or Nate Diaz's protege, I think his name was Nick Maximov, um, where he was like completely outsized by like 40 or 50 pounds or something like that. But either way, with uh, Harry Hunsucker, he came in on super short notice, and we saw it. He knew that he only had a limited amount of time to get it done, and he threw pretty much everything into all of his strikes and started gassing about three minutes or two and a half minutes into that round. That's where Jared really started to take over, uh, took down Harry Hunsucker, and then just absolutely obliterated him with some massive ground and pound um he came in as a heavy favorite in that fight uh minus 280 makes absolute sense due to the short notice nature of Hunsucker, uh as well as how undersized the Hunsuckers was as well um before that he did go out there and beat the vet the mma veteran tony lopez via decision unfortunately i just couldn't get access to that tape so that kind of sucked and then before that he lost to uh henan Fajea. 
Uh, that was another one where I wasn't able to get uh, tape on that. The ones I was able to get tape on, though, were very underwhelming. Uh, so the first one that I was able to watch actually was the Vernon Lewis fight. That was against a guy that was uh, 35 years old, so 11-year difference, uh, as well as a four-year layoff is what Vernon Lewis was coming off of, and he was still able to go out there and outstrike Jared Vendera for at least two rounds to take home a unanimous decision victory. Then he went out there to EFC. He went over uh, to South Africa to fight for that promotion. And his first fight over there was against an 8-5 and five guy named Elvis Mayo, who seemed like a boxer. Literally just a boxer. Couldn't deal with the leg kicks of Jared Vandera. Um, and then Vandera eventually finished him in that second round. Uh, the Ruan Potts fight, I'll give him some credit for. I didn't get to see that fight as EFC does a really good job of keeping their uh, tape under wraps. Uh, but Ruan Potts, he used to find the UFC. So to be able to get a victory over him, even though that Potts was... Let me confirm the age. Uh, he was... 42 years old when that, or sorry, 40 years old when that fight happened. So he's just going out there and fighting just absolute old dudes. And then uh, the last fight uh, in the EFC was against Ricky Micholas, who just seemed to be a striker who was 7-7 seven seven at the time. So that's all you really need to know about his level of competition at that point. The Tony Lopez one, I'll give him that. But anytime you fight anybody with relative, you know, talent... Richard Odoms, who was 42 years old, finished him in the fifth round. Not a good look there at all. Andrew Van Zyl is another one uh, who fell to Stuart Austin, who did uh, give Dalcha Lungiambulu, who was the champion at the time, a run for his money. And then obviously uh, Lungiambulu was able to beat him via split decision. So very, very sketchy record on Vandero's part. I will give him, give him credit for beating guys like Juan Potts and Tony Lopez, but uh, Sergei Spivak is just a completely different level at this point in time. Now, I know that Spivak gets a lot of flack. Actually, let's quickly talk about Vendor's fighting style. It's just a you know, very simplistic, kind of slow guy. He trains over there at Dan Henderson's training facility. Uh, Sam Alvey is one of his training partners. Um, you know, he goes out there, just has a very slow-paced game plan has a jab a nice left hook a re a leg kick uh takes the fight down when he needs to but it doesn't seem like it's something that's truly on his mind does some good uh clinch work as well too um but i think he's gonna have some trouble here against bivak who uh gonna be a big dude too in terms of size we got six three seventy eight inch reach for spivak six four eighty inch reach for vandera so slightly bigger for vandera uh but i think spivak is the much better fighter overall a lot of people want to go out there and give Spivak some flack. I'm not sure entirely why, but he has losses to Walt Harris. Okay, you get starched in 50 seconds and you just automatically get written off. Kind of like my guy Jake Collier the other week. Kind of like my guy Parker Porter the week before. Um, but then he comes back and the arm triangle chokes tied to Ivasa. And then goes out there, loses a unanimous decision to Marcin Tybura, which isn't too bad of a loss, um, given how uh, how much of a vet Tybura is. But then he goes out there and beats uh, Carlos Philippe in a in a solid fight where he's stuck behind his jab for the majority of the fight, and then in the third round goes for a takedown and just rides that top pressure and lands bombs from on top on Carlos Philippe to uh, pull away with a decision victory there. Now he comes back about five minutes later to fight a 
uh, five minutes, <laughs> five months later, uh, and fights this up and comer in Jared Vandera, who uh, has two more fights than him. But I think uh, Spivak is just much more uh, talented all around. So we've seen Spivak spend time over there with Alexander Volkov uh, for you know a couple months, uh, but he has also come over to Vegas now and started training at the Performance Institute and uh, even Syndicate MMA, I believe it is, or it's Extreme Couture, one of those two. But it's a it's a gym in Vegas, um, spending time with Francis Ngannou, Francis, spending time with Honey Marks, who's a, another former UFC fighter. Um, some good work that uh, Spivak is getting in. You know, um, I think he has a much more complete game than Vendera at this point in time. A little bit quicker to the punch, um, ability to mix in the entire MMA game will make it very very difficult for Vendera to come up. Uh, you know, make up the difference here in terms of skill. Now, I'm not the most confident in uh, Spivak at that minus 230 line. I wouldn't be uh, mad at anybody that put him in a parlay or anything like that. But personally, that line's a little bit too wide for me. I do think that Spivak is the better fighter. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I still need to see a little bit more from him. And even Vandera, a lot of people are just writing this kid off. And I kind of understand why. Again, sketchy record up until this point. Uh, it doesn't seem to show anything that really you know, glows off the page. Um, so, uh, yeah, I will go with Spivak uh, to win this fight. I'm not sure if you finish or decision, but I can see him just taking down Videra. It doesn't seem like the hardest thing to do uh, and kind of just riding top pressure or even just kind of slowly chipping away at him and, uh, you know, jabbing his way to a victory as well, too. So I think the the volume of Spivak will be able to be a, a definitive factor here as well as a as his ability to take this fight to the ground. So once again, I'll go with Sergei Spivak to win this fight via decision. Billy Quarantillo versus Gavin Tucker. We got minus 110 on both sides. This is a pick'em fight. Uh, minus 135 is what Gavin Tucker opened at. Uh, and we've seen a little bit of money coming on Billy Quarantillo since then. So let's start off with Billy Q. 15-2, and two, riding a solid win streak right now. He hasn't lost since he lost to Michelle Quinones who actually, I believe, lost to Sage Northcutt when he was in the UFC. I just want to confirm that, yeah, he lost to Sage Northcutt, and that actually has been his last fight. Uh, yeah, that was his last fight. Weird, weird, weird to say that. But let's get back to Billy Q. So he's riding a four, what is that, eight-fight winning streak. Um, all of them pretty much, yeah, all of them except two of them being by uh, being by finish. The guy's a killer, uh, which is funny to say because the last time around, Kyle Nelson goes out there and calls him, uh, you know, he's a survivor, not a killer. And unfortunately for he, him, he found out the hard way. You know what I mean? Billy, Billy Quarantillo, I love his style. I love the way he fights. He's very aggressive, always on the front, uh, always has his uh, foot on the gas. The guy's moving forward pretty much from minute one to minute 15 or up until he gets a finish. Um, you know, he did see a decision for the first time against Spike Carlisle two fights ago, but uh, that was a fight where Spike had a really good first round and then started to taper off a little bit. And that's where we saw Billy start to take over. Um, more often than not, you know, with the exception of a couple fights, Billy Quarantillo is always kind of fighting back uh, from a, a deficit, you know, that his opponent start, starts off with. Um, you know, they, they take him down, they, they land some good strikes, but it's always Billy Q kind of just climbing back and getting that finish, just as he did in the Quamela Quirk fight or Camela 
Kamuela Kirk and uh, the Spike Carlisle fight, and even the Kyle Nelson fight. Nelson started off pretty strong in that first round, but obviously later on in that first round, uh, we saw Billy really start to, to wear on him. But see, Billy Billy's style is very interesting because, again, it's it's very much based off of his pressure, his forward movement, and his, uh, you know, his his desire to not let you breathe and that's what it really comes down to and that's what really screws fighters over so like technically a lot of fighters are actually better than him but it's his mindset and it's his fighting style of just always moving forward no matter what's coming back 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 at him now it's going to take a certain kind of fighter to be able to one withstand that kind of pressure two have the technical abilities to be you know quicker to the punch and then three just being a better overall fighter and i think that's what we might have here in Gavin Tucker. Now, the only real question mark we have, or uh, kind of flaw that we have <coughs> in um, in Gavin Tucker's game is the the Rick Glenn fight. So that was his only ever loss. That was uh, close to three years ago, over three years ago now, uh, where he lost that fight. Ends up coming back in the same stadium. He comes back ten months later, or sorry, uh, almost two years later, just close to two years later in the same arena, I believe it was the Rogers Arena over there in Edmonton, and he goes out there and exercises his demons. You know, he goes out there, has a really good fight against Sung Wood Choi, uh, gets a rear naked choke in the third round, and then once again takes roughly about a year off and comes back and beats uh, Justin James via rear naked choke once again in their third round. So we're seeing his evolution as a fighter, you know what I mean? Uh, I've heard from some inside sources that he had a very bad weight cut, or not even just a bad weight cut, but just rehydrated very, uh, very poorly apparently they tried a different way of rehydrating and it really affected his cardio not to mention the fact that he kind of went balls to the walls in that first and beginning of that second round against rick glenn and rick glenn he's a savvy savvy fighter like he had 25 fights going into that fight against gavin tucker who was only coming into his 11th fight at that time you know what i mean so he had a ton of experience um stayed stayed the course and just had the same pressure from minute one to minute 15 and just never let up and you know it sounds similar to billy q here but the thing is rick glenn doesn't really give you an inch in the beginning like uh gavin tucker wasn't really having a you know super amount of success against rick glenn yeah rick glenn dropped him in that first round and that's where i really that's where i think we really start to see the tide shift um but that's in my opinion that's the difference between rick and billy is that rick uh he's looking to take your head off not really take your head off but slowly and methodically pick you apart from minute one to minute 15 whereas billy q it's just like okay i'm gonna go out there and throw these strikes but i'm not really gonna put much on them i'm just letting my pressure kind of get to you but i think if he does that he's gonna get countered a lot here by gavin tucker who is much faster than him you know billy does have a little bit of speed issues when he's fighting a guy like this we'll definitely see it uh he throws in combinations which is something that i like they come a little bit slower but obviously they come they're a lot more effective later in the fight when his opponent is already sucking wind uh but i wonder how much he's going to be able to take the damage from uh, gavin tucker early in those fights or early in the rounds or at least early in that fight to begin with now we've seen billy quarantillo's takedown defense not be the greatest but that could also be in part with you know him being a black belt high level jujitsu player uh and him kind of just inviting that like we've seen him you know kind of just you know run circles around some guys in jiu-jitsu and uh i'm not sure if he'll be able to completely do that here against gavin tucker who's a very high level jiu-jitsu player himself too i believe he's a black belt I, I i'm absolutely certain that he's a black belt and we've seen it shown off in a couple of his fights that he's been able to get rear naked chokes finishes over some of these guys um 
I, I, I don't know which way that we'll see Tucker kind of approach this. Is he going to just try to take this fight to the ground where we don't get as pressuring of a Billy Quarantillo? Obviously, you could possibly reverse positions or throw up submissions and kind of make Gavin Tucker work from there. But uh, I think that's a little easier to deal with uh, on the ground than it is like a guy kind of just marching you down the entire time. But again, that kind of plays into Gavin Tucker's game as well, too, which with him being a lot quicker to the punch, uh, you know, beating up the body a lot, which I think is going to be very important here against Billy, who has a great gas tank. I think if Gavin Tucker targets the body nice and early, he should be able to suck the wind out of Billy Q, Billy Q uh, and uh, maybe not have as rough of a third round or late second round as most of uh, Billy Q's opponents have had in the past. Now, I feel like Gavin Tucker is the perfect mold to go out there and beat a guy like Billy. You know, technically much better. He's faster. His jiu-jitsu is up to par. Uh, but the only flaw, like I said, was that Rick Glenn fight where we saw pressure absolutely break him. But I truly believe that Rick and Billy are just completely different fighters, which is why I don't think it'll have too much of a of an effect here. Now, in terms of the line movement, I'm recording this on the Wednesday before fight week. So this right now, it's December 2nd. And I'm expecting once... Uh, the fights this weekend conclude and we get into UFC 256 fight week, I think we'll see some money come in on Billy Q. I think we'll see some people go back and be like, oh, look at this Rick Glenn fight. This is kind of similar to how Billy Q fights. That's the type of fight that we're expecting to happen. I'm going to bet Billy Q. Now, I think that's where people might get a little bit twisted as I believe that, again, Rick and Billy, completely different fighters. Um, one thing that Gavin did struggle with against uh, Rick Glenn, which definitely demoralizes the fighters, is, uh, was his inability to get Rick Glenn down. He definitely used a lot of energy trying to get Rick Glenn down, whereas I feel like if he wants to get Billy down, he should be able to get Billy down. And that's that will do more for his confidence. He's not using as much... Um, uh, you know, he's not using as much energy or cardio to try to get Billy down. It's a lot easier to get him down, at least from what I've seen off of footage. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that part of it plays out. But I am siding with Gavin here and not because he's Canadian like myself. But uh, and it's funny that Billy is fighting two Canadians in a row. We don't have many Canadians in the UFC. So to get two in a row is fucking hilarious, in my opinion. But uh, I think Gavin is just a better, better all around fighter. And now as long as we don't see him have like a cardio dump or anything like that, Rick Glenn fight. And I'm not just calling it a cardio dump. Sorry. Like I do want to give credit where it's due to Rick Glenn who you know, just pressured him and chipped away at him that, that entire fight. Whereas Billy Q is, yeah, he's going to keep moving forward, but I think he's going to get outstruck here by Gavin, who will not discriminate, you know what I mean, in terms of which, uh, where he's throwing his strikes. So we could see him mixing up with the leg kick, the body kick, or the head kick, or even, you know, just combinations. Again, I think the, the, the striking is just completely on different levels here. I think Gavin Tucker is just a much, much better fighter, and the speed is going to be uh, very important for him here to land uh you know quickly before billy is able to and that may hopefully deter the forward movement of billy but we haven't really seen him get you know we've seen him beaten pretty bad and then come back and get a victory uh so i'm not sure how much it can really deter billy q's um you know his his motivation and his and his energy to continue to move forward. So, um, very tough fight. I completely understand why it's out of pick'em. I do think that we're going to see a little bit more money coming in on Billy Q here. And if that's the case, I do like me some Gavin Tucker at plus money. So, I'm going to wait and see how this line moves out. But I do think that Tucker is the much better fighter. I don't think that we'll see him collapse under the pressure like Glenn. If anything, well, I think we'll see him be a little bit more successful. 
even getting this fight to the ground, you know, playing it safe a little bit there, um, as safe as you can against a black belt like Billy Q. But I do think uh, Gavin Tucker is, is a high-level uh, jiu-jitsu player himself too, so I think he should hold his own there. But uh, on the feet is Roar, truly see the, the difference in skill here. And I think that's in Gavin Tucker's corner. So once again... I'll go with Gavin Tucker to win this fight via decision. I'm not sure if he'll be able to finish Billy. Billy's been quite durable, as we obviously know. Uh, he did get knocked out by Michelle Quinones uh, in round one. That was for AFC um, on the Ultimate Fighter. He was on the Ultimate Fighter and lost a decision to Saul Rogers. And then he got lost a decision to J.P. Reese in his third ever fight. So only gotten finished once. Uh, good durability. I'll go with Gavin Tucker to win this fight via decision. Verna Jandy Roba versus Mackenzie Dern. We got minus 165 on Mackenzie and plus 145 on Verna Jandy Roba. Let's start off with Mackenzie Dern, who's currently on a two-fight winning streak after uh, losing her first ever uh, MMA belt to Amanda Hibas. And uh, the interesting thing regarding that fight was that it actually took place four months after she had given birth to her first son, I believe it's her son. I'm not sure if it's actually her daughter. I got to look deeper into that. But let's just say her first child. Um, that's very, very impressive, at least uh, to me, to consider, you know, uh, a woman, you know, giving birth and then within four months being able to get that baby weight off and uh, getting into a shape where you're fight ready. You know, she didn't miss weight either for that fight. So that's very interesting um, given the circumstances leading up to that fight. But then obviously she goes out there against a much tougher opponent in Amanda Hebos. Uh Yeah, she was, uh, it looks like uh, Dern was a slight favorite in that fight, which is kind of interesting to me. I actually want to confirm that because that sounds kind of off. I feel like Amanda Hebos was the favorite in that fight. Um, Mackenzie Dern closed minus 195 interesting very very interesting i thought that hebos was actually the favorite in that fight yeah hebos plus 160 that night but yeah that was the toughest opponent that she's faced to date which is why she came up on the losing end yeah i mean uh hebos looking better and better with every single fight um her hands are obviously much better than Dern's uh her Muay Thai everything pretty much her striking game was much better than Dern's that night and then obviously with the jiu-jitsu she's pretty high level herself um obviously not to the level of Mackenzie Dern but just enough that she was able to like keep the fight away from the ground and pretty much just beat up Mackenzie Dern on the feet which is where she had the the vast amount of her success and then obviously for Dern the next two fights are way easier Hannah Cyphers, that fight looks a little bit hairy at first when she's not able to get it to the ground. Um, and then, you know, uh, Hannah Cyphers ha uh, hangs around a little bit too long with Dern on the ground, eventually gets to, you know, gets reversed and then uh, gets knee barred. That was an unfortunate loss for Cyphers, who was looking really good up into that part. And then Random Marcos, we all know the tail of the tape on that one. Uh, you know, Marcos leading up to the fight the entire week saying, I'm not going to engage in the grappling. I'm not going to engage in the grappling. And she lands this nice shot on Dern. Dern goes down and she goes, oh, it looks like Dern is hurt. I'm going to go out there and try to ground and pound her. Nope. She goes out there, it gets reversed, uh, and then ends up in an armbar and gets tapped to that. So um, not the most you can really take from those fights uh, in terms of the Dern side, other than her opponents kind of just playing into her game. And now with this Jandy Roba fight, this one is way more interesting because I feel like this is maybe the best or second best opponent that Mackenzie Dern has fought. Obviously, Amanda Hebos being the other one. I'm not really sure which way to to, to rate them if Hebos and Johnny Robo were able to go up against each other. But uh, 
This one is intriguing. Both women look kind of uncomfortable on the feet, so this is not going to be Amanda Hebas type of fight where she just outstrikes Dern and keeps the fight on the feet because Johnny Robert herself just doesn't look super comfortable. Like she she makes it known that she's just going to stay on the feet long enough, not really throw much, maybe throw a jab here and there, but her ultimate goal is to get the fight to the ground. And that's where I expect this fight to be. And uh, both women are high-level jiu-jitsu players. Even Mackenzie Dern was admitting that she's, you know, they them two are the best jiu-jitsu players in that division. And, uh, you know, maybe that's a bit of a slap in the face of Amanda Hebos. But then again, Jenny Robo touts her black belt game a little bit more than Hebos does. So uh, this one's tough, man. I, I really don't know which way to choose. I, I, I kind of wanted to go with Verna uh, pre-tape, but then running the tape, it, it's just not enough substantial information for me to be like, okay, I want to pick one or the other. Now, if you're talking about value, I feel like you have to go with the value on Verna at, at plus money, as I believe that, uh, you know, they might be able to cancel each other out on the ground. But with that said, uh, Mackenzie Dern, she's 27, Jenny Robo's 32. It looks like Dern is trying to, like, round out her game as best as possible. She recently started working with uh, Jason Perillo, who's been helping her to kind of tighten up her hands. I'm not sure how that how much that's really going to show off in this fight against Verna. Uh, you know, we've seen fighters try to make that transition with uh, other striking coaches, and you don't really see it come to fruition. But, you know, I mean, at least she doesn't like to, to get punched or, or sorry, she she shows that she doesn't mind getting punched, kind of like Malcolm Gordon, who tried going over there to Bazooka Joseph Valtellini's place and uh, pick up a, a thing or two in the striking game. But it's another thing if you just don't like being hit. And uh, it seems like Dern doesn't mind taking a shot or two. So that's at least uh, somewhat impressive. Now, the size, uh, Mackenzie Dern has like an inch in height on her. Their reach is kind of the same, too. I'm just so torn on which way to go here. I think ultimately this fight's going to be a pass, but I'm actually going to be leaning with the Mackenzie Dern side here now. Um, I, I feel like I, I was trying to find the credentials on Verna Jandy Roba in terms of jiu-jitsu, and it, it was much harder to find than what you could find on M Mackenzie Dern. Like, if you even just go to Mackenzie Dern's Wikipedia page, she has almost like a, a Rolodex of gold medals and, and all these uh, championships and titles that she's won in jiu-jitsu, which is absolutely insane. It's pretty obvious that she's one of the best if not the best and most credentialed jiu-jitsu player that pure jiu-jitsu player that's ever come into the mma world or at least the ufc world on the female side it's it's tough man i i'm, I'm so torn on this fight because i just don't know which way it's really gonna go i will eventually i will be leaning with mackenzie Dern here though i'm hoping that we see a little bit more improvement with our hands again obviously working with jason perillo um vernon jenny robo on the other side you know, she might have some issues dealing with the hands here. She did have some issues against Mizuki anyway on the feet. Uh, I feel like Dern might be slightly better. Uh, you know what? I, I don't want to say that, actually, because we need to see the improvements from Dern first on the feet before we can truly say that. So, uh, yeah, I'll go with Dern here, but I think that all in all, this fight's going to be a pass for me. Um, I just want to see them hit the ground and, and kind of see how that jiu-jitsu game kind of rolls out. It's it, it's one thing definitely for Mackenzie Dern's side to say that Jandy Roba and her have the two best you know jujitsu skills in in that division. Uh, so she's definitely acknowledging that Jandy Roba is a threat. Um, but I, I like Dern, man. It seems like she has her weight issues under control as well. I saw an interview where she was talking about being like three or four pounds overweight at this point in time, which is very, you know, very assuring, especially uh, considering like the, the the troubles that she's had in the past to make the weight. So good for her to be able to like straighten that out. 
you know, making herself uh, kind of known at this 115-pound division. And hopefully she can start to string together a couple victories now and really start uh, gunning for the top of the division. But we need to see those skills play out in the cage before we can truly, you know, ride home and be like, all right, this girl's a legitimate contender now. But beating a girl like Verna Janiroba, who... 16 and one record it's tough to beat her only one woman has done it and it was carla esparza kind of just beating her with the better wrestling um you know getting the better top positions staying out of submissions um if if dern can do that if dern can get johnny roba down and kind of uh implement her jiu-jitsu game from on top i think she might have more success but i'd, I'd love to see both women kind of off of their back and see what they uh, have to offer with offensive jiu-jitsu uh from that side so yeah i'll go on Mackenzie dern i'm not sure if she'll get the sub i'll say by decision i think she ends up controlling johnny roba on the ground uh maybe getting a better of the striking exchanges too maybe by not by a lot but just enough um but yeah I'll go with Dern here to win this fight via decision. Cub Swanson versus Daniel Pineda. We got minus 145 on the Pitt Pineda and plus 125 on Cub Swanson. The over-under is set at 2.5 with the over being minus 145 currently. Um, let's start off with Cub Swanson, who's coming off a bit of a layoff now. Uh, last time we saw him in the cage was actually October of last year at the UFC Tampa card where he beat Crone Gracie via decision. But before that, he had fallen on hard times, four straight losses. Now, normally that usually means, well, usually three fights. If you lose three straight fights, that normally means the end of your UFC career. But he's made a name for himself in the UFC. It seems like, um, you know, Dana and, and the brass is usually definitely going to be behind him here. Um, even if he loses, uh, he's a bit of a name. He's entertaining as a fighter. So I think most people are tre- you know, pretty happy to still see him around. I think if he lost the Crone Gracie fight, that probably might have been a little bit different. But he did end up getting the victory there. And now he still keeps his job alive. And now here he is against Daniel Pineda, who uh, probably a tougher test than Crone Gracie was, to be honest. So uh, we know Cub Swanson's style. You know what I mean? He, he prefers to be on the feet. Uh, he moves very well, has a diverse set of skills when it comes to, uh, you know, the striking realm, uh, kicks very well, punches very well, moves very well. His 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 downfall recently has seemed to be uh, the ground game. You know what I mean? When fighters are able to get him to the ground and really do some solid work from on top, uh, they could either get the finish via choke, via ground and pound, but more often than not, considering that uh, Cub Swanson is a black belt, it's kind of... Uh, it's weird to see him get tapped as often as he is. You know, that's why a lot of people were high on Crone Gracie to be able to get uh, Cub Swanson to the ground and pull off that type of uh, victory. But uh, Gracie's wrestling game is really just not there yet. And that's where I think that Daniel Pinet, uh, Pineda definitely uh, exceeds more than Crone Gracie, which is why I believe he's the rightful favorite in this fight. Um I did have a big bet on Cub Swanson against Brian Ortega, as I believed his footwork and his and his uh, you know his striking would be able to kind of piece up Brian uh, and and keep the fight on the feet. However, Brian just did a really good job of just jumping guillotine. Uh, you know, Swanson looked great in that first round, and then in the second round, he allowed Ortega to clinch up a little bit too much. Eventually, jumped for that guillotine choke just in midair as well, and then eventually got the finish. So big win for Ortega in that fight, and that started off the four fight losing streak for Cub. Swanson you know he loses to Frankie Edgar who attempted eight takedowns didn't complete any of them but I think that's more so of a case of just Edgar just you know not really being in the shape and the form of his former self where he was able to go out there and get takedowns like the last time so the first time he faced uh 
Cub Swanson, Frankie Edgar was able to, uh, um, he was able to complete seven takedowns. So uh, let's see how many takedowns he actually went for in that fight. He went seven of 13, so just over 50% in that fight, and then went 0 of 8 in the next fight, but was still able to kind of uh, outstrike Cub Swanson on the feet to get the decision victory there. Then we saw Moicano land a beautiful drab drop uh, Swanson, and he followed that up with the takedown, and then eventually got the back and got the rear naked choke. And then the Shane Burgos fight, kind of close, mainly contested on the feet. We didn't see Burgos shoot for any takedowns, uh, but Burgos still ends up pulling out the victory there. Now here with Pineda, we know what Pineda's game is. He, he likes getting the fight to the ground. He likes implementing that top pressure and going for submissions of his own. So I think that's the type of game plan we'll see him go out there and and implement against Cobb Swanson. Let's not overlook uh, uh, Pineda's return to the UFC, uh, coming back to the UFC last time around and beat Herbert Burns as a heavy underdog. I'm so happy to, to have hit that play on my own. But uh, Pineda came in roughly as a plus 230 plus 240 underdog against Herbert Burns and finishes him in the second round. You know, pressure, pressure, pressure from the get-go and it eventually broke Herbert Burns who had some good positions on the ground. Uh, you know, as a solid black belt, Herbert Burns just wasn't able to get the submission against Pineda. Now, I think Pineda, if he gets Cub Swanson to the ground, he's going to have a lot of success. I think he's going to beat him up from on top. I think he has a really good chance to, you know, hold his own on the feet, but I think he'll be very successful in kind of pushing Cub Swanson up against the cage. Again, I'm not, I don't like to harm on it too much but the you know smaller cage does really uh entice action a little bit more than normal so i think he's going to be able to push cup swanson up against the cage drag this fight to the ground and really get his top game going just as we saw in the herbert burns fight and even in you know his his run up back to the ufc uh he's really used his wrestling and his ground and pound uh to a very full effect and even get a couple of submission victories in there as well now i tried to make this case last time around in terms of uh when i was breaking down his fight with herbert burns but you could make a case that Daniel Pineda is 11-0 coming into the UFC. Well, 12-0 if you want to take this Herbert Burns fight into consideration. But we had the Emmanuel Sanchez fight. That was a split decision. Apparently, it could have gone either way. So let's just say in a hypothetical world that he got that decision victory. Then the Georgie Karakanyan fight. He was whooping on Karakanyan for a solid nine minutes before Karakanyan uh, definitely uh, or finally hit like an up kick that cut uh, Pineda. Probably the only and best strike that Karakanyan landed in that fight. Cuts open uh, Pineda. Probably like not even the worst cut we've ever seen either. It's like a cut that a lot of doctors, in my opinion, probably would have let continue going. And uh, Pineda could have easily, you know, locked up another victory there. So uh, that could have been a victory for him. And that's what I'm talking about. And then he has those two no contests where he won two fights in one night. One against uh, Movled Kaibuliev and uh, Jeremy Kennedy. Uh, those fights get turned to a no contest because apparently he popped for all the steroids. Which I find hilarious that they eventually signed him to the UFC even after that. Uh, clearly they didn't care about that. So um, yeah, good for him. Gets back into the UFC. I'm not sure if he got a performance of the night bonus. Yeah, he did get a performance of the night. So great uh, victory to come back to and a, a ton of money to come back to as well. So solid win for him there. Now four months later, he's stepping back into the cage against the UFC vet in Cub Swanson. And I think he he takes this fight. Like his stand-up isn't horrible. I think he, uh, you know, Cub Swanson, 37 years old, been off for a year now. 
just turned 37 in November. Daniel Pineda is 35 himself too, but he still looks to be in prime tip-top condition. And he seems to have a type of game plan and strategy that he goes into his fights with that is a nightmare for Cub Swanson. So as long as Pineda doesn't really get knocked out on the feet or anything like that, I definitely think that he'll get Swanson on the ground and really do some damage, whether it's lock up a choke or even just finish this fight via ground and pound. So the spot that I like, so I do like Pineda, minus 145, maybe not so much. I think that's a little bit steep and I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of money come in on Swanson as I do think that uh, like I've heard from a couple people that they believe he is live after running the tape and doing the research myself I no longer believe that because that's something that I did believe going into the tape here but I don't think uh, he's as live as I initially thought uh, the spot that I'm going to be looking at the most though is the under two and a half and we are seeing a little bit of money come in on that so it is pushing the number down it opened at plus 125 now it's at my plus 115 so I don't really know um where that line's gonna go so we'll see when the limits open up a little bit more and then if it's still at plus money that might be a spot that i look to hit here but i do think it's going to be a daniel pineda fight consistently taking down cub swanson uh doing damage on top um you know staying out of any type of submission threat that cub swanson may have with his black belt i truly believe that herbert burns is a much better black belt than him and he had pineda in some really sticky situations and we saw pineda get out of it so i think if he's able to defend against herbert burns he'll be able to defend here against cub swanson uh and do some solid work from on top so uh, i'm taking pineda via finish probably second round whether it's uh you know TKO submission whatever it is I truly think that he'll be able to get Swanson down time and time again and get that damage in so uh, once again I'll go with Daniel Pineda to win this fight inside the distance probably second round is the spot that I'm looking at Junior Dos Santos versus Cyril Gunn we got minus 410 on Cyril Gunn and plus 330 on the veteran Junior Dos Santos so let's start off with Sagano here who's coming off three straight losses now all of them via finish Francis Ngannou uh, Curtis Blades and then Jerzinho Rosenstrike um, the last two of them coming in the second round it's it's tough to watch uh, Junior Dos Santos go out there and continuously get knocked out but you can't really blame him for the Francis Ngannou knockout the Curtis Blades one was very interesting because we saw Blades use his striking a little bit more threaten with the takedowns and then obviously in that second round you know really kind of throw off JDS in terms of being able to get that finish beautiful beautiful finish on his end there and then Jerzinho you know played it really safe in that first round possibly even gave that up to JDS but in that second round we saw him uh, start to throw a little bit more and it seems like almost every single Junior Dos Santos finish where he gets knocked out ends with him up against the cage and it feels like he just doesn't really have the best feel of like being able to get out of the that that like behind the warning track he just doesn't know what to do when he gets to that point there are times where you see him kind of feel it and then he just like pivots off and does what he needs to but most of his finishes come in that position and it's very very concerning for sure um it's it's finishes that have happened even earlier in his career Stipe Miocic um Alistair Overeem Cain Velasquez you know when he gets finished it's not it's not nice and his you know it's like when you're when you're watching him and he's throwing out like when you're watching him in that first round of the uh rosen strike fight you see okay maybe he still has a little bit of pep in his step the guy is uh 36 years old um you know in heavyweight that's still somewhat in your prime if you want to call it that but jds is obviously far removed from that compared to when he you know did win the title i believe it was way back in 2011 god damn can't believe it's already been nine years since we saw him get that strap but 
you know, his boxing looks good. His movement looks decent. But it's just these young up-and-coming guys that are just, you know, kind of tearing him down. And uh, he's getting a, another beast here. One thing you got to give to J JDS is his ability to just take name after name after name and and kind of put them through the ringer and see if they're actually worthy of fighting for a title or anything like that so Cyril Gunn is the next one up here and I feel like he's probably one of the harder opponents that he's faced up to date just due to his athleticism you know I like to kind of con uh, compare Gunn and Nganu to uh, a certain extent where um, he does have a lot of power he's a big dude but he just moves a lot better I think he has the best movement uh, in the heavyweight division in terms of being so agile and and quick and and uh you know devastating with the strikes now we've seen a bit of a an improvement from Cyril Gan's game where he's just uh, matured from a you know a first round finisher to kind of just feeling things out in his last two fights we saw him go all the way to the third round against Dante Mays and then in the Tanner Bozer fight we saw him go out there and just win a decision victory I believe it was that Adam Dishka fight that probably changed it around for him obviously the Hodger Souza fight was kind of easy for him to get that was his last fight before the UFC but the Dishka fight we saw him really go balls to the walls in that first round and a half or so and possibly look a little bit you know like he was sucking a little bit of wind luckily for him he was able to put away Dishka in that uh you know three seconds left in that second round and since then we've seen a little bit more of a measured approach from him he's not really going out there and just throwing it all in that first round and then potentially getting caught in the second and thirds here now it's just he has that karate stance very light on his toes moves forward in and out pretty well and even when he's moving backwards to kind of uh, evade the strikes that are coming his way he does a really good job of kind of hiding his chin uh, just behind his shoulder where when he's standing sideways obviously he's gonna have to worry about the punches that are coming this way but he does a good job of keeping his hands up as well to kind of protect the chin there i don't really know what jds really has to offer here in, in in terms of opposition i really think the only thing that jds can do here to win is knock out gun but i don't think he has the power to nor have we really seen uh chin issues on guns uh you know on guns end. he's only had six pro fights um, so that's something that people need to keep in mind. So he's still a bit of a work in progress, but everything that we've been seeing from a fight to fight basis is him just growing and getting better. And, and Tanner Bozer is a guy that I'm kind of high on in the heavyweight division. Unfortunately for Bozer, Sirogan is kind of like a carbon copy of him, but just much more athletic, much quicker, much faster and hits a, a lot harder. And we definitely saw the difference in that fight against Bozer there. Um, now with JDS, you know, he's going to have to worry about the strikes that are coming back his way from JDS, but I feel like Gon will have the, the speed advantage. He'll be able to get in and out of the range, land the strikes that he needs to, land a couple of leg kicks here and there. And that's where the, the question comes. Now, you're not going to want to play him at minus 400 straight or minus 410 straight. Maybe he's a good parlay piece at that price. But uh, the, the, the question is, is it inside the distance or is it via decision? And I'm kind of leaning more so to the decision side as I feel like he doesn't really want to overextend himself too much here against JDS I still believe like even though JDS has gotten finished in his last couple fights I still kind of believe in his chin I mean he he ate some big shots from Ivanov he ate some big shots from Tuivasa he even ate a couple big shots from Derek Lewis but Francis Ngannou we obviously know he he just absolutely separates himself in terms of power the guy will put out anybody um, the Curtis Blades one that one was very well set up because it was you know the the the, the, the 
the threat of the takedown um, really kind of threw off Junito Santos and Blades just lands a beautiful shot to, to put him out there, beautiful knee, and then eventually, you know, following up with punches. And then the Rosenstrike fight just landed clean. Rosenstrike hits really, really hard too. That's another guy. But Gunn, again, I'm not sure if he really puts the most into his punches at this point. He seems to really be content with going out there, chipping away at his opponents, and then kind of... Um, you know, taking advantage of uh, of bad situations. Now, if he's smart enough, or you know, if his coaches actually see it, they can see that JDS really does struggle when he's behind the warning track and when he does get up against the cage. Unfortunately for Junior, this is once again happening in the apex, which means that they're going to have a smaller cage, which means that his back will touch the cage a lot sooner than uh, than a normal cage. So um, that's something that he's going to have to worry about. I'm not 100% sure yet, though. I, mean, I still feel like Gon will play it as safe as possible, just pick him apart from the outside. But if the, the finish does present itself, it could potentially be there. Um, that That's what has me a little bit... That's what has me concerned here in terms of whether Gon will be able to get that finish or not, whether he'll expose himself enough and put himself out there enough uh, to potentially you know, get countered from JDS or if he's just okay to just sit out there on the outside and pick him apart. So um, I'm going to go with Gon via decision. I think that's the way he goes about it. I think he doesn't play too hard with Junior. Like Junior is still able able of cracking and, and landing on dudes. He was landing some good shots on Rosenstrike. And you know there was a little bit of speed behind it too that definitely caught Rosenstrike off guard. Um, so Gon's going to have to be careful. So uh, yeah, I'm going to take Gon to win this via decision. I think he just plays it safe, sits on the outside, lands his couple shots, gets out of the way um but yeah this will be his first like legitimate win in the ufc not legitimate because the bozer win was a big win but uh, over a named opponent albeit junior dos santos coming off at three straight ko losses i still think that this is a good win for gone if he's able to secure it so once again i'll go with Ciro gone to win this fight via decision by just picking apart junior dos santos from the outside and capturing that uh, decision victory Arnaldo Jacare Souza versus Kevin Holland. We got minus 150 on Kevin Holland and plus 120 on Jacare. And the line actually opened at minus 175 for Kevin Holland and has slowly started to come down to that minus 140 range. Uh, and I think that's due to people actually going back and watching the tape here now rather than just, uh, you know, hammering the opener and thinking that, uh, you know, it's the right spot. So let's start off with Kevin Holland. Um, he was involved in a bit of a mix up. He was originally scheduled to fight Jack Romanson. Well, actually, um, Jack Hermanson was originally scheduled to fight Darren Till this past weekend. Then it switches to Kevin Holland. Then Kevin Holland tests positive for COVID. And then they pretty much just play musical chairs with him and Marvin Vittori. Uh, so now Kevin Holland matches up with Jacare Souza, which in my opinion, um, tough matchup. Tough matchup for sure. I feel like the Vittorio one would be stylistically a little bit more favorable for him. Now that's interesting to say, considering that we're talking about a how old 40 something year old 40 year old uh Jacare Souza he will be oh wow so today's uh December 6th uh and his birthday is tomorrow if I'm not mistaken uh December 7th so yeah so he'll be 41 uh, by the time the fight goes around but uh, anyway we're talking about Kevin Holland he's on a four fight winning streak currently but since the COVID situation has started uh, he's been one of the guys that's been affected by it pretty negatively because he keeps getting lined up with like legitimate opponents and then they just keep falling out unfortunately uh, for him you know what I mean so uh, he was supposed to fight well he fought Anthony Hernandez back in May then he was scheduled to fight uh, Daniel Rodriguez that falls through he's supposed to fight uh, Trevin Giles he pulls out pretty much like half an hour before they're actually scheduled to go out there and fight then he steps in the next week to fight Joaquin Buckley 
we obviously obviously know Buckley is on a bit of a skyrocket trajectory right now, given that uh, crazy knockout that he had over Impa Kasanganai. Uh, then he steps in against Darren Stewart. Not bad of a matchup. Then he was scheduled to fight Mahmoud Muradov, which was going to be a great fight. In steps Charlie Ontiveros on super short notice, a guy that does not deserve to be in the UFC, at least in my opinion. And he goes out there and crushes him within uh, two and a half minutes of that first round. Um, now... Jacare Souza. But the fight that I want to go back to and kind of like bring your attention to is the Darren Stewart fight, where you see in the third round, especially the one part that's uh, most interesting is that uh, Darren Stewart ends that fight a minute and a half to two minutes in the top position, raining down shots on Kevin Holland, who can't really do much to get out of that position. And that's very discouraging to see, especially if you're trying to back Kevin Holland here against a very high level jiu jitsu guy in Jacare Souza. Now, you can say what you want about Souza getting older and kind of falling off, but two things that you can take away from him is that he went out there in his last two fights fought Jack Manson to a decision in a fight where he could have you could make a case that he won that third round which would have eventually given him the fight um or sorry that was the Jan Blachowicz fight but sorry the Jack Manson fight loses a decision super short notice for Jack Manson goes in there gets the upset then the Jan Blachowicz fight that's the fight where he won the first two rounds you can make an argument for that third round one judge even scored it for Jacare Souza that night uh, and then Jan Blachowicz ran away with the second two but uh, you know Jacare ends up on the on the on the losing end there so what we have to notice here is that you know Souza is still being somewhat competitive against uh, top uh, you know top echelon of each of these divisions whether it's middleweight or light heavyweight uh you know he 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 doesn't seem to be a guy which with much chin issues which is which seemed to be a bit of a narrative on him uh following that Robert Whitaker fight where he got knocked out uh that was uh April of 2017 so we're talking close to 4 years ago now that he got knocked out and he hasn't been knocked out since and he's been fighting a couple of heavy hitters here and there Derek Brunson Kelvin Gastelum uh Jan Blahovich, even you can say he's a heavy hitter now and he's been able to walk through it so Kevin Holland, not really known to be that one-hitter-quitter type of guy. Um, you know, likes to mix it up, likes to kind of uh, outpoint you if that's the style that he's looking for. Uh, and then he also has some decent jujitsu. but there are instances where it gets a little bit hairy for him and he shouldn't be stuck in certain situations. Again, like the Darren Stewart fight, you know, gets taken down a couple times. Uh, takedown defense doesn't seem to be the greatest, which is a bit of a concern here. Concerning if Jacare gets him down, it might just take one takedown. You know what I mean? Given, uh, you know, Jacare is definitely going to be much bigger and stronger here. Uh, he will be slower, obviously. Kevin Holland is going to have the speed advantage. Uh, so I, I like Holland on the feet, but not by a crazy amount. You know what I mean? He he still makes some mistakes in terms of just... I, I believe that he'll be the one backing up here. Uh, I believe Jacare will have a pretty decent or easy job of kind of pushing Kevin Holland up against the cage, getting him behind that warning track, and then getting the fight to the ground. I feel like if he truly wants it, he can get it there. And uh, with Jacare, you know, he, he is a high-level jiu-jitsu guy. That's something that you can't take away from him. Even Damian Maia, you know, getting up there in age, but he's still able, able to go out there and, and choke out some of these younger guys. Um Let's not forget, Kevin Holland got choked out by Brendan Allen uh, just just over a year ago. And he's shown, uh, you know, takedown inefficiencies against uh, Darren Stewart last time around. Even though he won that fight, that was a very close fight and definitely got some of his grappling acumen a little bit exposed. Yeah, he's a, you know, they claim he's a high-level jiu-jitsu player under Travis Luter. We see it at times, you know, even at the Gerald Mearshart fight, we see them pretty much going back and forth the entire time. Whereas I feel like if Jacare gets him in these types of positions, he should be able to take advantage of him. So I, 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 I might as well say it. 
but I do have a, a bet on Jacare Souza already. I've uh, plugged it in at plus 140. Now he's down to plus 120. I'm expecting this line, if not to flip out or at least get down to a pick him, but I believe it should be flipped. I do believe that Jacare should be a small favorite here. I think that people are overvaluing overvaluing uh, Kevin Holland a little bit too much. And yeah, he's supposed to go out there and crush guys like Charles Ontiveros and Joaquin Buckley and Anthony Hernandez too. But now this is like a legitimate opponent that he's fighting. And even though Jacare might be past his prime at this point in time, I still think that he has the top chops to go out there and get Kevin Holland down and kind of control him from on top or potentially pull off a submission of his own. So I like Jacare here, man. And I think he's a solid dog. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be dropping this on the Monday of fight week. So I'm hoping that he's still the dog and people are able to tail if they want to but uh yeah i do like jock right here i uh, got him at plus 140 i already got a unit and a half on him there uh, i'm expecting the line to flip like i said so if you want to get on jock Ray, i would highly suggest doing so soon and uh, obviously the sub prop i think the sub prop will be very very live here so uh poor takedown defense from kevin holland not the you know not the greatest power puncher does throw volume out there but i don't think that's going to be enough to really deter jock Ray souza from continuously moving forward here landing some big shots and throwing some big shots but eventually getting the fight to the ground and really getting his jiu-jitsu going so once again i'll take jacare souza to win this fight via first or second round submission not moicano versus rafael faziev we got minus 145 on Fiziev and plus 125 on Hanato Moicano. And let's start off with Moicano, who's been on a bit of a roller coaster run in the UFC. So uh, he he accrued his first loss against Brian Ortega in a fight where he was pretty much piecing him up the entire fight, then gets caught in a, a guillotine choke in round three. Uh, pretty much the story of Brian Ortega's up and coming uh, nature in the UFC is just always being behind. Uh, and then eventually locking up a submission. Uh, so can't really fault Hanato Moicano there. Um, goes out there and beats Calvin Cater, as well as Cub Swanson, finishes him in the first round, and then gets a big, big step up in Jose Aldo. Uh, and we see Aldo... Uh, uh, finish him in the second round after having a very still made his first round we saw moicano kind of just gauging his distance landing a couple leg kicks getting a couple combinations off but not really anything uh uh too crazy there and then in the chancellor young fight really did not get to get going we saw young land a beautiful overhand right and then eventually ground and pound not to moicano there uh and then leading up to that uh, or sorry after that Roughly about uh, nine months later, he comes back and fights Demir Hadzovic in the event pretty much before the COVID shutdown. Uh, yeah, I believe he dropped him or he got the takedown. I'm trying to remember. But uh, he did lock up a rear naked choke after that. Uh, there was a little beef afterwards as well. Hanato Moikano was just fired up. You know, not many people in the crowd, so that made him kind of uneasy. Uh, as well as you know him just having a kid and him wanting to fight a little bit longer. That's when we had that infamous exchange where uh, you know Mike Connor's like, "I want to fight more," and Demir Demir's like, "You shouldn't have tapped me. <laughs> you know what I mean, you shouldn't have submitted me." <laughs> so, uh, very uh, fun and uh, interesting uh, exchange there between the two guys. But at least McConnell's back on the winning track, and now he's trying to tie together two wins here. Unfortunately, he has a very very tough test in front of him with Rafael Fiziev, who. Uh, seems to be the real deal so we know what moicano's game is he has a solid jiu-jitsu background uh but his uh striking is pretty much where he's done the brunt of his work uh like again in that cub swanson fight drops him with a beautifully placed and timed jab and then follows up with a rear naked choke um 
the the Calvin Cater fight, you know, goes out there and stri- outstrikes Cater as well too. Um, he seems to do solid work from there. Uh, but now that he's fighting a guy like Rafael Faziev, who is the kickboxing coach at Tiger Muay Thai, that should tell you as much as you need to know about this guy. And his uh, his stand up is nasty. His overall game is really starting to come together as well too. Um, I believe it's George Hickman is the name of the head coach over there at uh, head MMA coach over there at Tiger Muay Thai. And he's doing a really good job with a lot of these opponents or a lot of these fighters. Uh, one of them that really comes to my mind right off the bat is Loma Lukmunmi, who looked great last time around. Uh, but they're doing a lot of good work with Rafael Fiziev. Now, a lot of people were going out there and kind of just writing off Rafael Fiziev after he lost to Magomed Mustafaev back in April of 2019. Uh, he got caught with a spinning back kick, and then uh, Magomed, you know, followed up with some punches. Now, Fiziev wasn't completely out. It was more so of a flash knockout, if anything. Uh, so it was more of a TKO than actually being put out. So I'm not trying to go out there and be like, okay, this guy is chinny. I do think he has some good durability. But in the next two fights against Alex White and Mark Casey, we truly saw what this guy is capable of. You know, solid takedown defense, good takedowns of his own, good top control, good top pressure, good ground and pound. But obviously his bread and butter being the kickboxing. Uh, very, very nasty with his leg kicks, his body kicks, um, kicks in general. The guy kicks like a, a freaking madman. Uh, and his hands are great too. The guy throws in combinations. He's very active. His cardio looks good too. Um, he seems like could be he could be a problem if he really starts to con- uh, get active and and start you know racking up these names now to get Hanato Moicano is a solid step up from Mark Casey and a good way to assert himself within this division and I think he's very live to get a victory here. Um, we know now it comes down to how good Fiziev's takedown defense is as I believe that Moicano will have the advantage there if Moicano is successful in getting this fight to the ground I think he can make things a little bit hairy with that jiu-jitsu but Fiziev looks very very strong like it's insane how strong that guy looks um I think he should be able to keep this fight on the feet and I think that's where uh, the, the difference will be. Once this fight is on the feet, I think the leg kicks of Fiziev will really start to pay dividends. One thing that we see in that Mark Casey fight is near the ending of it, they put up a graphic of like the distribution of strikes from Fiziev and the guy does not discriminate at all. Like it was 20 to the head, 20 to the body, 20 to the legs. Like the guy just mixes it up so well that it just continues to make his opponent think and, and is on edge and, and kind of gets them irritated as well too. Now I think if he's able to go out there and continuously do that against Moicano he could absolutely stifle him and and really uh kind of make him shoot de- desperation shots which are a lot which are a lot easier to uh stuff as uh as the defenders so I think that Fiziev might have him beat here all all around uh my issue here though is I I I feel like people are, are, you know, succumbing to a little bit of recency bias with Moicano, hence the line, you know, being the way it is. I think it should be a little bit more of a pick em fight. Let's not forget, before the Aldo and Chan Sung Jung fights, Hanato Moicano was seen as this guy that was going to be the next big thing. You know what I mean? He was going out there and disposing of his opponents outside of that Brian Ortega fight, and even beating a guy in Calvin Cater who... You know, a lot of people are high on at this point in time who's even main eventing against Max Holloway in the new year. You know what I mean? So I think we need to step back a little bit in terms of writing Moikano off right away. Um, He's 31 years old. He's still in his prime. Fiziev is 27, so he's still, like, getting up there. 
uh, and getting closer and closer to his uh, prime. But truly, I think this is a fight that I'm going to stay away from. I do think that Fiziev is the better fighter. I think that he has a ton more potential, and I think he's going to win this fight too. But I would have, I would rather have a much better line. Like I was hoping for maybe minus one twenty, minus one fifteen, even a pick 'em odd uh, odds for Fiziev here. I think there is recency bias baked into the line, which is why it's just moving as much as it is. But uh, I do pick Fiziev to win still in terms of betting. I'll probably end up passing, and it might bite me in the butt as I think that, you know, Fiziev is is definitely a good spot here. Uh, will I have him in a couple of DGEN parlays? Probably. So don't be uh, don't be too surprised if that's what you see. But uh, I do think Fiziev has a ton of talent, but I do want to m- pump my brakes a little bit in terms of fading Moicano here, considering that he's, you know, one in three in his last... Uh, or sorry, one and two in his last three fights. And again, two of them being two solid opponents in Jose Aldo and Chan Sung Yung, even though uh, Korean Zombie just got outstruck for five rounds by Brian Ortega. I still think that uh, that's not a bad loss considering how much power the Korean Zombie carries as well too. And that fight didn't even go a full minute. Had that fight played a little bit longer, who knows what Moicano would have looked like. So uh, I, personally, I want to stay away from the fight due to possible recency bias here. Uh, I don't feel comfortable betting on Moicano, though, because I am high on Fiziev, but I still want to see what he still has left to uh, kind of offer to the game. And this is a good test for him because Fiziev is a, is a guy on the rise, and Moicano could definitely assert himself back into the division with the big win here. So uh, I'll still take Fiziev to win this fight via decision, uh, but I, I'm keeping my eye on Moicano. You know, I, I think he still could potentially be live, but I'll go with Fiziev to win this fight via decision. Tony Ferguson versus Charles Oliveira. We got minus 165 for Tony Ferguson and plus 145 for Charles Oliveira. Let's start off with Tony Ferguson, who's coming off uh, a loss. The first loss that he's incurred over, I believe it was 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 13 fights. He was on a 12-fight winning streak and then runs into Justin Gaethje a night that he's supposed to be fighting the lightweight GOAT, Khabib Nurmagomedov. Unfortunately, COVID throws a wrench in our plans. Ferguson still goes out there and ends up fighting Gaethje for an interim title and then pretty much just gets boxed up for five rounds before finally getting finished in that fifth. And uh, that was a very concerning fight for Tony Ferguson who took an immense amount of damage in that fight. Now, I'm not reading too far into it, strictly due to Tony Ferguson just being a complete madman. Uh, There is no fighter in the UFC that you can compare to Tony Ferguson from a fighting style to even... uh, Actually, fighting style, you can kind of say Brandon Roy Vow, like I was saying uh, a couple weeks ago. But um, mentality-wise, there's nobody that comes close to this guy. Like Leading into that Anthony Pettis fight, he... Uh, injured his ACL, tore his ACL, had a really bad injury there. And within a couple, like right after rehab, didn't even have much uh, legitimate rehab, just did everything himself and just fixed himself and came back better than ever. Goes out there and beats Anthony Pettis and Donald Cerrone um, and then gets that title shot against uh, Justin Gaethje or an interim title shot against Justin Gaethje. Crazy man. Like the guy is pressure nonstop, all action all the time. Uh, whether it's spinning stuff, flying stuff, uh, his jujitsu, his wrestling, whatever it is, he's always marching you down, making you uncomfortable, and putting you in situations that really questions your 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 motivation as a fighter. And I believe this matchup for him in particular is very, very uh 
it's good. <laughs> Simply put, it's a good matchup for him, given uh, Charles uh, Dobronx's uh, negatives. But uh, just staying on Tony Ferguson for a minute, you know what I mean? Like his his punches mechanically aren't the greatest, but it's almost like a Billy Quarantillo type of thing where it's not the... It's not the technique that you really need to worry about. It's just a consistent forward-moving pressure. Uh, you know, just just always, whether it's the face, if you're blocking the face, he's going to go to the body. He's going to keep going to the body until you bring the hands down. There, he's going to come up to the head. His elbows are insane. If you guys remember that Anthony Pettis fight where he rocks him in the second round, early second round, you see, uh, you know, Ferguson do his whole loop-de-loop. He, he spins a couple times, but during those spins... If you guys actually notice, he he throws his elbows, both of them, and one of them actually ends up cutting Anthony Pettis. Now, the commentators are kind of uh, thrown off and thinking that all the blood is coming from Tony Ferguson's mouth, but I don't think a single drop came out of Tony Ferguson's mouth. It was strictly all from that cut that he landed on Anthony Pettis. Uh, it was in the hairline. It was a nasty cut. It was a deep cut. They even stopped the fight to like check it out. Um, but yeah, he's he's throwing offense pretty much at all times. Now, it's really hard for me to believe that Charles Oliveira is going to be able to handle that type of pressure from a guy like Tony Ferguson, who just does not let you breathe. Um, you know, you have to give credit where credit's due. Charles Oliveira is on a uh, seven-fight winning streak, all of them via finish. One of them, I believe, over uh, two of them over opponents that he's fought in the past. But you got to say the most impressive one was the Kevin Lee fight. Um even the David Tamor fight, David Tamor was on a little bit of a run there, and then he ran into Charles Oliveira, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Oliveira was a slight underdog in that fight, or oh, he was a slight favorite, minus 125, um, but this run, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due in terms of he went out there, fought seven times, and finished all seven opponents. Now, the the competition is kind of where it gets a little bit sketchy. Clay Guida, Christos Chiagos, Jim Miller... David Tamor, I'd say second best he's fought. Nick Lentz, Jared Gordon, and then Kevin Lee, who I believe is probably the best fighter that he's fought. But we know what Kevin Lee's issue is. For some reason, he just, round three comes, round four comes, and he's just sucking wind. Um, he's not really able to, you know, get his takedowns going or or get his hands going. He really looks demoralized. He looked decent in that first round. In that second round, you know, Charles Oliveira really started to put up, or the, you know, get the output going with his hands and his Muay Thai, and it looked really crisp. It looked really good. You can tell the confidence in Charles Oliveira has definitely been building during that six-fight winning streak leading into that Kevin Lee fight, which eventually uh, allowed him to capture a seven-straight victory. But... Um, you know, it was a little bit concerning near the end of that second round where Kevin Lee was on top. We didn't see much movement on the bottom from Charles Oliveira. I don't know if it was from him sucking wind or what it was, but Kevin Lee was doing a good job of keeping that half guard position. Now come the second round, it looks like Kevin Lee, or the third round, Kevin Lee's just huffing and puffing, does not look good, goes out there and throws a head kick right off the bat, but it kind of gets blocked by uh, Charles Oliveira. And then he goes out there and throws probably a pretty sloppy single leg and that's where Charles Oliveira just wraps up the neck immediately he was just waiting for that opportunity grabbed the neck and just twerked on it and uh kind of puts Kevin Lee out it was an interesting finish there where Kevin Lee didn't think he tapped kept on fighting but clearly it was a tap so big performance there from Charles Oliveira and I'm not sure if he just needed to go out there and beat some guys like that don't deserve to be on his level at this time just to gain that confidence and and help him out, but going from Kevin Lee to Tony Ferguson is just an immense leap. Tony Ferguson, Tony Ferguson is not going to stop. He's going to be the one forever moving forward. Now, I'm, I'm concerned about Ferguson in terms of 
if uh, Charles Oliveira's shots start to land on him because his Muay Thai is really starting to come together. He's landing crisp shots. He's hurting guys. He's rocking them. He's dropping them. He has a couple of t- KO finishes on his record now too. But I feel like it's, you know, it's probably first round or bust for Charles because by that third, fourth, and fifth minute, Tony Ferguson's already going to have his game plan going. He's already going to be sticking it in his face. It's going to be a tough night for Charles if he's not able to get it done early, in my opinion. Ferguson's not going to stop. He's legitimately not going to stop, and it's going to break Charles Oliveira. We've seen that in the past where guys are just able to break him. Paul Felder broke him. Ricardo Lamas broke him. Max Holloway broke him. Frankie Edgar broke him. Cub Swanson broke him. Like He's going out there and beating like average dudes in this weight class Kevin Lee obviously being the best of but again I'm not the highest on Kevin Lee I expected if that fight did go to the second or third round that it was going to be very tough for him and that's exactly what happened I believe my lock of the night play that night also was the under two and a half so thankfully it only took 28 seconds into that third round for me to cash that bet but uh here I'm it's either Tony Ferguson or the under two and a half now I'm recording this on the Friday sorry the Saturday I'm getting my days mixed up. I'm getting recording this on Thursday before f- uh, the fight week. So I'm. it's actually December 3rd as of right now. And there are no over-unders available yet. There is no fight doesn't go to decision yet. I just want to quickly uh, refresh the page here to see if anything did drop. No, nothing yet. But um, I either like the under 2.5 or Tony Ferguson. I think somebody's getting finished here. Uh, Charles Oliveira, I believe it was 23 out of 27, 27 fights uh didn't uh went under two and a half rounds and one of them missed by like 10 seconds like it's a crazy amount of fights that he's actually gone out there um you know what let me get that number right for you guys before i start talking out of mass i know for tony ferguson 10 out of 17 fights have hit the under two and a half for uh the bronx let me make sure i get this correct i should have had this written down but i do want to make sure i get it right for you guys so we got one two three four Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nope, that's the one that missed by 10 seconds. Uh, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. 23 of how many fights is that? 23. 24, 25, 26 fights. 23 of 26 fights have hit under two and a half. Now I'm trying to, I gave you, I gave you guys kind of the similar numbers with Gatsimurad and Tugulov a couple weeks ago, but that really was pertinent on uh, Antigulov going out there and, and doing what he did. But for some reason, he just took the entire first round off with Tony Ferguson. You are fighting as soon as that first belt hits. No doubt about it. So I totally expect Tony Ferguson to go out there and drown Charles Oliveira and get that finish, whether it's in the second round or even early third round. I totally expect Tony Ferguson to finish Charles Oliveira here. Now, a part of me kind of hopes that Oliveira gets the win because look at this guy. He's had 26 fights in the UFC, a lot of performance bonuses and fight of the night bonuses. Uh, He made his debut August of 2010. So we've truly seen him grow and mature in the UFC. And this is a big, big spot. This is the biggest spot he's ever had easily the biggest spot he's ever had a win here could potentially vault him into a title shot you know what i mean that's that's how big of a spot this is for charles but i just feel like ferguson he still has it in him in my opinion i think the gaethje fight was just a little bit too bad of a matchup for him gaethje really stood his ground really got, let his punches go didn't mind what was coming back his way from uh from ferguson but i think charles just you know 
Charles is going to break. It, it's going to come down to the mental game of Charles Oliveira, and I truly think that Ferguson has everything to go out there and, and, and finish Charles Oliveira and break him as well, too. So it's either early Charles Oliveira, two or three minutes into the fight. If not, it's going to be a Tony Ferguson fight. He finishes him in the late first or second round. Even if it stretches into the third, I don't see it going really deep into that third round. So once again, I'll go with Tony Ferguson to win this fight, probably by second round uh, KO or submission. Submission would be an interesting one, given that uh, Charles Oliveira has a massive amount of uh, of, of finishes on his record uh, via submission, but he has gotten subbed a couple times as well. So that's something to keep an eye out for. All right, this has been a long-winded breakdown, but I'm so excited for this fight. This fight is probably the fight I've been looking forward to the most all year. Before I said that about Brandon Moreno and uh, Brandon Royval, now it's this one. Easily this one. By far this one. So once again, I'll go with Ferguson to win this fight by second round TKO or a submission. Time for the main event. We got Davison Figueredo defending his title for the second time in a month pretty much it was maybe three or four weeks ago that he defeated Alex Perez he's going up against Brandon Moreno and luckily for them uh well not luckily maybe I guess it's a good thing for both guys that they get this quick of a turnaround after relatively short fights last time around um I believe this was actually supposed to be headlined by Piotr Jan and Aljo that fight gets pushed back and uh now we get this fight uh kind of just taking its spot so uh, we got minus 300 on Davison Figueredo plus 250 on Brandon Moreno um he did, Figueredo did open up at minus 265, got down to minus 290, got down to minus 310, and now minus 300. I think that's roughly where it's going to stay. I think we see a ton of people go out there and parlay uh, the God of Ward here, and I completely understand why. So let's actually start off with him. I did... Um, ever so slightly fade Figueredo last time around um, with Alex Perez, as I believe that Alex Perez's uh, wrestling was going to be a very big factor in that fight, getting Davison down and uh, kind of controlling him, sucking the wind out of him, and just accumulating solid top control. Um, but Davison, man, I, I one of the things I said in that breakdown is he has a very nasty guillotine, especially when fighters are going for the takedown. So the fact that Perez wasn't really privy to that, and I know it was a, a bit of a weird exchange that kind of led to that uh guillotine choke being slapped on but uh man you can't let leave your neck open in the slightest around Figueredo because that guy has a mean squeeze especially with the fight being as early as it was you know the the fight ended just under two minutes into that first round so he was still very fresh he was still very strong so obviously he was going to be able to get the the majority of his energy into that choke and that's exactly what happened and Perez was forced to tap so um you know what we're used to seeing from Davison is exactly what happened in that fight you know uh Perez did land a couple of good shots on him I will say that but Figueredo once he started to put his foot on the gas he really started to go for it and that's eventually when the finish came there um we know what his style is you know he has a ton of power in his hands he's always moving forward um there's been question marks about his cardio uh it held up in the Pantoja in Pantoja fight in the third round of the Drusia Formiga fight we saw him kind of having his foot on the gas as well and kind of just marching down for me and getting uh he ended up losing that fight but it definitely showed uh you know kind of the the, the a different side to what everybody has been saying about Figueredo's cardio. Uh, now, since that uh, Formiga loss, he has five straight wins, two of them being over Joseph Benavides and obviously capturing the flyweight title in that amount of time. And uh, 
I, I think I got to stop fading the guy. And uh, I think Moreno, you know, he brings some very interesting uh, skills into this fight and different looks that I think might throw Figueredo off a little bit. But ultimately, I still think that Figueredo should be able, should be able to put away Moreno here. So uh, let's go over the baby or the assassin baby who, since coming back to the UFC, um, has gone, what is it? Uh, 3-0-1. He has one draw in there, which should definitely be a win over Askar Askarov. I had a lot of money on Askarov that night, and uh, luckily for me, I, I the judges screwed that one up, and they ended up calling it a draw. So um, that was a fight that I definitely think that Moreno deserved to win. Um, and then after that, he follows that up with a beautiful performance against Kai Kata France. A lot of people didn't think that uh, you know Moreno would be able to outstrike Kara, and he did. You know, he brings this weird unorthodox boxing style to the game now, where he kind of keeps his hands low. He has a piston of a jab now, uh, and he moves in and out very well. Um, his movement alone, his footwork, and all that is very much improved since we had originally seen him in the UFC after the Ultimate Fighter. Um, and he continues to make improvements. Like he goes out there, beats Juicy Formiga, even after getting into some sticky situations. And then the Brandon Royval fight, you know, we did see Royval land a couple of big shots on him, but uh, ultimately it was a, a shoulder injury that uh, kind of wrapped it up for Brandon Royval there. Even when you watch that final exchange again, you kind of hear Royval uh, let out a bit of a scream or a, a bit of a, you know, a noise of pain, whatever the fuck you want to call it. And uh, you see Moreno kind of immediately look up at the at the referee, and then he just starts wailing on his face. He goes, "Okay, this fight's going to be stopped." So he continues to does it, and uh, with one second left, the referee calls the fight. There, uh, I wonder how different it would have been if you know Royval was able to go back into his corner and uh, get Mark Montoyak to kind of just readjust that shoulder, just as he did. Uh, and I'm sure Royval would have been good to go once again. But uh, unfortunate end to a very anticipated fight there, Royval. I'm sure he'll be back soon, but. Luckily for Moreno, he doesn't, you know, get much damage in that fight, and he's able to return uh, pretty quickly after that. So, uh, yeah, again, good jujitsu for Moreno, uh, improved striking, improved confidence as well too, which I believe is very, very important for his game. Uh, but I, I just don't know how he's going to fare against Figueredo here, who is, you know, going to be countering him. Uh, I think he might be quicker to the punch too, which might really throw off Moreno. Um, Moreno is going to have to keep his hands up more than he does. I know, you know, usually you want to stick to your guns in terms of what brought you to the dance, but uh, you got to make some sort of adjustments when you're fighting a high-level uh, champion like Davison at this point in time. And now I might get a little bit of flack for not backing Moreno when I backed Perez, but I just feel like Perez had a better... Uh, had the better chops in terms of getting the fight to the ground. Whereas Moreno, he's more of a guy that kind of just likes to hop on the back or, you know... Um, uh, pull guard or something like that that's the type of takedowns that this guy gets whereas Davison I think if he is faced with that type of takedown attempt he's pretty good at like you know um, exploding out of these bad situations um, and I think he'd be strong enough to kind of like you know get Moreno off of him if he did, does end up like you know hopping on his back or something like that so uh, I do like Davison here the line is a little bit too wide for me so I'm not sure when we're going to get Davison at proper betting odds once again um I still need to see who he's going to fight. Like, there's a lot of guys that I... Maybe not a lot of guys. There are a select few of guys that I would choose to probably fade Figueredo with. Um, 
Moreno just for some reason doesn't make the cut for me anymore. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure why. This fight all in all is probably a stay away for me. I would say Figueredo wins. Um, they set the over under at two and a half, which I find to be intriguing. If they had it at one and a half, I would definitely probably take the over there. I think, you know, Moreno's movement and, and, uh, you know, just just his style of fighting could potentially push this over one and a half. However, at the two and a half mark, I think that's a point where you know the fighters really start to get comfortable, and we might see like more crisp strikes, um, you know, well timed counters or something like that. Uh, that's where I start to get a little bit iffy. But again, this could still go under two and a half too. I, I I'm very much concerned. Uh, you know, if I were to take a side here. Fight doesn't go to decision at minus two thirty. You know, you get that full twenty five minutes. I think that's a solid spot if you're looking for a prop to bet here. Uh, and even Figueredo inside the distance minus one thirty makes a little bit of sense. Um, yeah, I, I do like Figueredo here. I think he'll have the crisper striking. I think he'll be able to counter Moreno. Uh, that's been one of Moreno's kind of downfalls with this new style that he has. Like he's very aggressive. His hands are down though. That's the kind of issue that I, I don't like here. Um, he does leave himself to get countered a lot and you don't want to get countered by Figueredo. So I'm intrigued to see what kind of uh, game plan that Moreno does come in here with. Is it going to be more grapple heavy? Is he going to be just jumping uh, guillotine or is he going to be trying to hop on the back, pulling guard, whatever it is. I think he's going to have some trouble with Figueredo who just continues to show that he's just on another level compared to these guys at, uh, at this point in time. So I don't think Moreno has the wrestling chops to get this fight to the ground where it could be potentially more comfortable with him with his jiu-jitsu uh unfortunately he's gonna have to keep this fight on the feet and that's where i think that figueredo will have a, a bit of an advantage in terms of just countering properly and landing the bigger shots so i'll go with figueredo i think he eventually gets the knockout probably second or third round um but yeah this should be a fun fight it's definitely a fun fight definitely something that i'm looking forward to and i'm hoping that it's a little bit more competitive than what we saw out of alex perez last time and i i believe that moreno is a warrior he's a guy that's going to go out on his shield and he'll give us a solid performance so uh should be a fun fight i may stay away from it, it yeah that, maybe figueredo inside the distance at minus 130 but i fully expect that to get steamed once we see the limits start to open up but uh yeah i'll still go with figueredo to win this fight either second or third round tko or ko and those are the breakdowns i appreciate you guys checking out the episode again if you guys haven't already hit subscribe hit like really helps me out and uh, again, check out the Patreon. That's the best way to support your boy. Five to ten bucks a month. You guys choose how generous you want to be. Uh, you can cancel at any time. And it truly allows me to get closer and closer to being able to do this thing full time. To have that guaranteed money on a monthly basis. Not have to worry about bills or anything like that. I can just dedicate all my time to MMA handicapping, which is what I want to do. Predicting all these matchups for you guys. And giving you guys the best betting content and insight I could possibly give you and all that's possible to everybody that's on the patreon so shout out to everybody that's on the patreon again link is in the description below if you want to support me that's the best way to do it and uh yeah that's about it good luck on your bets this week i'll see you guys thursday for propping you up at 8 p.m eastern with me and cody i'll see you friday with the odds crew at 9 p.m eastern for the final win and then i'll see you on fight day 1 p.m. Eastern for uh, the MMA Lawcast Live, where that show is all about you guys in the comments, uh, sending me questions, all that shit. It's all for you guys. All right. Good luck on your best this weekend, and I'll see you guys throughout the week and next week. Mm-hmm.